Hello, and welcome to Shank Talks Bonhoeffer, a podcast all about, or at least inspired in large part, by the life and times of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the young, morally courageous, brilliant Lutheran pastor, theologian, ethicist, and Nazi resistor. One of the early voices to challenge the phenomenon that was then transforming his beloved Germany, its society and culture, its politics, and even its religion, the church, its theology. And what Bonhoeffer left us uh, in the wake of all that uh, and after his execution by the Nazis at Flossenburg concentration camp in April of 1945 is a library, uh, a, a magnificent resource for us in treating the ethical crises in our own time and in our own places. So we try to do that through this podcast and of course, through its sponsor, the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute, which you can learn more about by visiting the website at tdbi.org. That's www.tdbi.org. You'll also find us on all the social media platforms. And what we try to do is take Bonhoeffer's seminal ideas, his concepts, how he approached uh, the enormous challenges of his own day and use them to guide some of our thinking uh, on how to resolve these conflicts uh, in our own settings. So you're invited to be part of the family. And uh, some of the work that I do with the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute is, of course, to host this podcast. Uh, that's why it's called Shank Talks Bonhoeffer. And in case you missed my name, it's Rob Shank. And uh, the other thing I do from time to time is go out and uh, just conduct talks, conversations with various groups, individuals, as well as organizations and congregations. And one such congregation that I visited recently was Temple Sinai in the nation's capital, Washington, D.C., which is home to me. And that is Washington. Uh, I was a visitor and a very warmly received one at Temple Sinai. And I want to thank everyone there uh, for that warm welcome, uh, both the, the clergy uh, and laity who hosted me. And in that talk, uh, I covered a range of things, including uh, an exploration of the crisis within American evangelicalism, which I often refer to as multiple points of failure. There have been multiple points of failure within my religious community, and I reflect on some of them in this conversation because I assume that most of the audience would not be familiar with the idiosyncrasies of American evangelicalism. Of course, I'm quite familiar with it. I'm an ordained evangelical minister. I'm a graduate of evangelical educational institutions. I have served uh, in leadership 
in national and international evangelical organizations. It's been the totality of my adult and professional lives. So I kind of know it, and I can be a very loving critic of it, as I am these days. And I share a little bit about that during this session at Temple Sinai in Washington, D.C. I invite you into the room with me for that brunch talk recently here in Washington. You can join it virtually and share in it by just posting your thoughts about it on our various uh, social media and internet platforms. And I hope you will. So come on into the room at Temple Sinai in Washington, D.C. and join me for this conversation, this part of it, on multiple points of failure within the evangelical community. Yeah, uh, the uh, anecdote you told about all the pastors having concealed weapons and the shooting of the agitated visitor um, bring to mind, I, I think they're related in important ways. And we have sort of a behavioral economics problem. That is, we're looking at the numerator and not the denominator. Hmm. Uh, you, you look at the lottery winner, but not all the millions of people who lost. Um, mass shootings account for something under 1% of all murder fatalities. Um, so if you take the 40,000 uh, gun fatalities a year and the 400 or so for mass murders, that's, that's a tiny percentage. And if the denominator is not 40,000, but the millions of people who attend church every Sunday, you don't even notice those numbers, yet people are reacting. Um, and the church could be the solution, not the problem. That agitated person, if the church had taken the right approach to dealing with that individual, it could have been the solution, not a problem. It, you know, behavioral economics is just the way people react and think and, and their emotions. But how do you deal with it when it's such a widespread and dangerous phenomenon and, and change the church into the solution, not part of the problem? Wow, great question. And I, you know, I wish I were the expert on all these things. I do love the concept of crowdsourcing. <laughs> Uh, in, in problem solving, and I think, you know, we have a wonderful room uh, to do that here. Uh, so I hope, you know, that's something we need to answer together and explore together. And I'm encouraging churches all across the country. This is what I do now. And, and, uh, and we're, you know, starting from uh, youth and working through young adults and uh, lay leaders and pastors and so forth, and giving them tools to do that. If you go to, did I advertise our website yet? Oh, <laughs> tdbi.org, tdbi.org, you'll see that one of the tools that we offer is a Bible study on this whole question of guns and gun violence. And that's a way we don't make any formal pronouncements. It's inductive. You know, you'll investigate it yourself and use this as uh, a, a tool, uh, you know, to study this question together and come up with solutions together. And I, 
I, you know, maybe accuse me of being a blithe optimist. I do tend to tack optimistic rather than pessimistic. I do think on the whole, things are getting better for humanity, notwithstanding all of the present challenges we have on the whole. Um, so, you know, I think given the right tools, the right setting, people will start discovering good solutions and, and good answers. Let me give you one example, and I cite this partially, tell the story partially in the book. One of those encounters with armed clergy was on the border of Southern Ohio and Kentucky. And I was in a room, they banished the cameras, said no cameras, get them out, okay. So we had an off the record, off camera conversation. I had about, I want to say 15, 20 clergy around a conference room table and I said, let me ask you, how many of you are armed? Right now, you're carrying. Every one of them. Every minister in the room was armed. I said, okay, so let me ask you some questions. And we went down a, a whole bunch of roads and, and lots of interesting discussion. And then I said, now tell me, when it comes to drawing the weapon, firing and killing another human being, what happens at that moment? Now I'm speaking to clergy, most of them seasoned. They were in the ministry for 20, 30, 40 years. All right, making that decision in that moment of time to draw the weapon, fire and kill. What are the elements? What are the factors at play here? There was a lot of uncomfortable body language. And then finally, one gentleman, I put him in his mid-60s, raises his hand. All white, by the way, all white. Hand raised. I said, yes, brother. We refer to each other like that. Brother, please. He said, well, I'll tell you. Well, you see, you're not going to like to hear this, but this is the way life is here. In this county, I'm going to draw that weapon on a black man before I draw it on a white man. And I said, excuse me, brother, I'm, I'm not sure I heard you clearly. What? Did you say black man? What, why? What, please help me to understand that. Why would color, skin color matter here? And he said, because I'll tell you, in this county, a black man knows he doesn't belong. So if he's here, he's already looking for trouble. And that makes him more dangerous than any white man. In a church. In a church. A preacher. And I, as you can tell, I'm not someone often, you know, at a loss for words. I was just stupefied. I, I didn't know what to say. I said, well, okay, you know, let's sit with this for a minute. What our brother just said, is there anybody else who would feel similarly? Well, they're kind of looking like, well, guys, you know, okay. But after we were done, he came up to me and he was, he was weeping. And he said, I hated telling you that, brother. I hated telling you that, but you don't understand how we live here. This is all I've ever known in my life. He was in agony. Now, I'm not excusing him. I'm not saying, see, so he was really a good guy after all. He was not. He was ready to kill based on skin color. He was a abject racist.
and a, and a dangerous one. At the same time, I would like to think that maybe the others were squirming because they didn't like what they were hearing about themselves. So all I'm saying is if we can create an atmosphere where people have to face themselves and their true feelings, what they are really thinking, and this is where we get to, for example, you, you brought up the math on mass shootings, and of course, one of the common denominators in the shootings is the type of weapon, the AR-15 or similar uh, semi-automatic rifle inspired by a battlefield automatic weapon. So, okay, and you know, I will hear routinely, yes, but you're talking about the smallest numbers and come on and the greatest dangers are elsewhere with different kinds of weaponry and blah. Yep, 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 except one big uh, secondary denominator, I would argue, and that is the allure of these weapons. What they do to our minds. Has anybody here shot, uh, oh, uh, certainly, Madam Ambassador, in your training, <laughs> you have. Anybody else shot an AR-15 semi-automatic rifle? Okay, Mike, Tommy, others? I'm going to tell you something. There's a magic in those machines. You take those to yourself. At first, they're scary. I mean, but once you learn to handle them, there's a seduction, there's a chemistry, a dopamine hit that occurs. You know who used to talk about this? Justice Scalia. Did anybody see the, one, the, the, uh, the play at Arena Stage on Scalia? Do you remember him with Elena Kagan firing and how much joy and pleasure he was experiencing? He would talk about that. You have never felt what you feel. You may have drank a nice Chardonnay, he said once, but it's nothing compared to shooting an AR-15. There's a dopamine hit, an exhilaration, a feeling. Now you transfer that to any gun. The gun makes me powerful. It makes me inconquerable. Uh, it makes me attractive. There's something there. So we, in, in our tools, we're introducing that. T tell me how you feel when the gun is on your belt or in your hand. How does that make you feel? I ask ministers, do you feel different going to the pulpit with the weapon than you do without the weapon. How do you feel? And it's almost conveyed in spiritual terms. In our parlance, uh, our colloquial evangelical language, we talk about feeling the anointed. You know, uh, the anointing, pardon me, the anointing. I feel the anointing. Man, when I'm in the pulpit, I feel the anointing. I feel the presence of the Spirit of God with me, enabling me to proclaim his word and touch human hearts with the power of God's message. But that ain't nothing to what I feel on the range when I'm firing a weapon. You talk about anointed. I feel greased on the range. I hear that language from my peers. So these are things we have to deal with inside the church because I would argue the church is sick. It is sick with a plague. 
with a disease. And all of this, you know, there's romantic ideas and imagery, you know, that guy sat there that morning at the church in Pennsylvania, and boy, he was ready to be God's anointed. In the moment there was trouble in that church, he would be the vessel that God would use to fire the missile that would take out the evildoer. And he felt pretty good about himself that day until he was convicted of manslaughter and sent to prison. Now he's a little depressed. But, okay, a few more? Yes, sir. Yes, can you talk about um, uh, any connections between Martin Niemöller and Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Oh, uh, the, the, um, also the impact of the confessing church and at what point did the confessing church, uh, at what point was the confessing church perceived as a threat to the Nazi regime? Well, uh, careful, because you get me on Bonhoeffer, I will bore you. I will get, I will. And by the way, folks, we've been sitting here a long time. Anybody needs to see the plumbing, please. Go check out the plumbing in the building and come on back. This is all family table here. Um, I brought show-off stuff. These are early editions in my collection of Bonhoeffer's two seminal works, uh, The Communion of Saints, Sanctorum Communio, his first dissertation, did I mention at age 21? And his second dissertation, um, oh, it wasn't uh, Sanctorum Communio, it was Act and Being. But anyway, uh, at age 23, I mean, this was one of the most brilliant minds of the last 150 years. And you mentioned uh, Martin Niemöller. Do you know the name Niemöller? Uh, again, these are all complicating, uh, complicated figures from history. Martin Niemöller, uh, you know, former naval uh, uh, officer in Germany and chaplain. Um, a member of the Nazi party, uh, but pastor in um, Berlin. And it was in Niemöller. Niemöller was one of the first to challenge the Nazi edicts in his pulpit. He would be arrested for that. Uh, eventually would be remanded to uh, one of the camps. Anyone remember? Suddenly I'm at a loss. Uh, maybe it was Buchenwald. Yeah, I think. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. And, um, but Niemöller, Niemöller was an inspiration to Bonhoeffer. I think Bonhoeffer saw Niemöller's weaknesses, but still admired him greatly. Was Niemöller the one who said, first they came yeah. from the socialists, then they came from the labor unions? That's exactly right. And then there was no one left when they came for me that's right and yeah and of course you know the cadence of that and i did nothing because i was not a socialist i did nothing because i didn't say anything and and speaking is important here because one of the warnings that bonhoeffer left was that the church must speak early i think that's why he admired niemöller because niemöller spoke early and if you know the story here it's really quite a wonderful story um it would be, uh, it would be um, uh, Niebuhr here in the U.S. who would beckon Bonhoeffer to come to the United States for safety because they saw what had happened to Niemöller and they knew it's only a matter of time before Bonhoeffer would be arrested. And so, um, um, uh, which of the Niebuhrs? There were two of them. What's the matter with me? 
um, it was uh, Reinhold Niebuhr was, was the one who beckoned Bonhoeffer to come to the United States. He did, uh, became a fellow at Union Theological Seminary in New York. One of his assignments was to teach Sunday school at Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem, home to none other than Ambassador Susan Johnson Cook. And Madam Ambassador, I will always be grateful to you for taking me to Abyssinian Baptist Church, where this blonde-haired, blue-eyed, ultra-transparently white German pastor was teaching Sunday school uh, at uh, this beautiful church in Harlem. What's that? Yes, and uh, it would have been uh, Adam Clayton Powell who was pastor then, yeah, right? That's right? And Bun. Yeah. Yep. Senior. Senior. Yes. And Bonhoeffer was enormously inspired by that church and really underwent what he called his true Christian conversion there. He had thought of himself as an intellectual Christian, but not a passionate heart Christian. That happened at Abyssinian Baptist. And because Frank Fisher, one of his uh, colleagues at Union, uh, I think the only African American at that time uh, studying at Union, befriended him, took him to Abyssinian, that's how that all happened. And because of what Frank Fisher uh, told to Bonhoeffer of what was happening in America with the oppression of, uh, of blacks. He looked at that and said, I've got to go back to Germany and suffer with my people. The, the way black church leadership suffers with its own here, I have to suffer with my people. And he went back. And of course, in, he would be, uh, you know, uh, well, did I mention it was in Niemöller's kitchen that the Pastors' Emergency League was organized, which Bonhoeffer was a part of, and led eventually to the formation of the Confessing Church, which was a resistance movement to the Nazification of the Protestant Church in Germany. So all this weaves together. I'm sure I've bored you by now, so I want to be careful of that. Yeah, oh yes, and, and this is why, bon well, Bonhoeffer was the kind of resident ethicist for, for the conspiracy movement. Oh, he definitely knew of it. He approved of it. And if you read ethics, I dare you to read Bonhoeffer's magnum opus, Ethics, uh, which, he read, which he wrote principally at the monastery of Etal, hiding from the Nazis, um, trying to elude capture. Uh, and he wrote most of his work for ethics uh, at Etal. And um, if you read between the lines, you start understanding Bonhoeffer's embrace of the conspiracy to assassinate Adolf Hitler. And it comes in the central core. This is going to ch challenge my German. And if we have other German speakers, please feel free to embarrass me. But this term that he used, Stelfreitung, right? Stelfreitung, this 
vicarious representative action became the core of Bonhoeffer's thinking on ethics, which is you stand in the place of the oppressed and the suffering and you act on their behalf from that place. So you use your place of privilege to stand in the place of those who have no privilege, who suffer, and act, on the, and act in a concrete way on their behalf. And the conclusion he came to was, in Germany, because of the scale of human suffering, there was no other solution. And he referred to this as in extremis. So in the extreme situation, he said, all ethical norms are suspended. And one must act even if it violates one's conscience. And he said, even if it should risk one's eternal salvation. He was willing to actually go to hell uh, to, to spare the world the suffering under Hitler. So he was saying, maybe I'm wrong, and maybe murder, extrajudicial assassination is murder, and maybe in murder I will be condemned for eternity. I am willing to suffer that for, for the sake of uh, the oppressed. <laughs>